Hello. Hello, Imran. Hey, John, we did it. Okay, finally got two after the second try. Thank God, thank God. It's good to hear from you, man. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Yeah, 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 I'm listening. It's, it's been a long time since I used the phone, so my phone manners aren't up to par. I mean, it's been 11 years. <laughs> I don't even know if people can begin to understand what's going on with you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a situation where I'm used to it because I've lived it and I'm still living it, but I'm not fully aware of the impact it's having on anybody in society. Because, you know, I'm, if, when I talk about it, it's just, you know, it's there, it happened. But for somebody else, you know, it seems, well, I, I can't really put myself inside somebody else's mind or their emotions, their thoughts, and see how it impacts them. The thing is that there's not a lot of information about John Merritt. And what, whatever there's out there, it's all from the prosecutors and, and from the courts. And I mean, you know, I think we're old enough to understand that we just can't believe everything that they're saying. So there has to be data out there using the technology that talks about who is John as a human being. Okay, okay. You know, I, I really appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much for calling me. But tell me something, how, how are you doing, John? Well, you, you got, I guess, one thing you have to understand is that what I did, I took adversity and used it as a stepping stone to grow as a person and as a soul. So the harder it got, the more I grew. I think I, I found out that I'm the type of soul that if it's easy and gentle, then there may not be no deep soul searching going on within me. But I had one of the hardest things to ever hit me in my life and getting found guilty for something that I'm innocent of and then originally being sentenced to die, I had no no choice but to literally go within myself and figure out, you know, the meanings of all the heavy questions, what is life about, why am I here, what is the purpose of all of this, and how do I overcome it and find some sense of stability within myself until I can finally daylight and get this justice incorrected. It's been a long ride, a very long ride. And 17 people that I loved and cared about have died. I went from being a young man in middle age to into, I guess, what you would call the older senior years, although I don't feel like somebody who's 64. And I'm certainly not built like somebody my age. I'm built like somebody much younger and the energy level's much higher but I think that's because of my choices as to how I choose to carry myself in here, what I choose to engage in. No drugs, no alcohol, no foolishness, uh, just exercising and uh, meditating, studying spiritual truths and focusing on the law and getting myself out. And you have one minute remaining. Man. Wow, I didn't know these were such short calls. I thought they were much longer. I, I hate to say this, but that that's just the truth. But is it possible for you to call back? Uh, yeah, there's uh, maybe later there's a line of people waiting. You're listening to Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. Yeah, we don't want 
John Merritt is currently serving a life sentence for the 1982 murder of Daryl Davis, which occurred in Lake City, Florida, while John was at work, allegedly. John is at the Appalachian Correctional Institution in Sneeds, Florida, and for the last almost four decades, John has denied this and maintained his innocence, except for the time when he was coerced to make the plea deal so they don't kill him by putting him on death row again. And joining me today is John Merritt. John, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thank you. This is John Merritt. As Imran said, everything he just repeated is true. In 1982, on March 1st, I believe, a man named Daryl Davis was found murdered in his home. Well, at that time, I worked for Jim Clampett at one of his Chevron stations by the I-75 overpass on 90 West in Lake City, Florida. Yeah. When four years later I was indicted for this case, I told my lawyer to contact Mr. Clampett to see if he had the four-year-old time cards to verify that I would have been working for him at the time this crime occurred. Yeah. Martin Black was the attorney appointed to represent me by the court. Martin Black told me with a straight face, so I believed him at the time, he said that Mr. Clampett told him that he no longer had the time cards and therefore he didn't want to testify to something that might not be true. Yeah. I didn't find out until decades later that Attorney Black was just straight up lying to me when an investigator finally talked to Jim Clampett he said no lawyer had ever talked to him, and no lawyer had especially ever talked to him about a murder case. He said that, uh, yes, I don't have the time cards in that time period, so it's possible that he may have been working for me, but I can't say one way or another. Yeah. Beacon Investigations found some reports that indicated that Neil Knightum, the sheriff's investigator who's been coming to the parole hearings against me. This is my 36th year in prison for this. This is my third parole hearing coming up, and he's came to the last two telling lies on me to cause an adverse reaction from the parole commissioner so that I won't be released. Well, he was supposed to have checked my alibi, and he never checked it. So I don't know if he is the one that told the lie to my attorney, and that's what came out of my attorney's mouth or if my lawyer just made it up regardless my lawyer the one appointed to represent me straight up lied to me about talking to my former boss he made it seem like he had talked to him so according to the court documents no physical or dna evidence tied you to the crime scene not even circumstantial evidence so how did you end up in prison well according to the body search warrant and the affidavit they stated that over 100 latent prints and hairs from someone unknown were found at the crime scene. Conventional forensic testing by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement in 1986 proved that the close to three dozen hairs found on the deceased person's 
outer clothing, a broken glass where the killers gain entrance to the residence, a kitchen stove, I think on a rifle. None of them match mine. None of them, those didn't match the deceased victims either. They were from an unknown person or persons. And none of the fingerprints match mine. Yeah. The interesting thing is that neither state witness, and they both had the same color hair as that that was found on the murder victim's outer clothing, their hairs were never tested, Yet, the sh and the one never even got hair samples taken from him, Gerald Skinner. The other one, Greg... Yeah. The other one, Greg Hopkins... Yeah. The sheriff's investigator Knightum testified at the 1986 trial that his hairs were tested and that the results were inconclusive. And he said, mine were inconclusive. All that was a lie. Perjury's under oath. Found out later on, Hopkins' hairs had never been submitted for testing whatsoever. And the hair tests on me were conclusive. It was not mine. Wow. How I got convicted was through a series of lies told. And lawyers not telling me what the case really was against me so that I could have given them witnesses to prove that I was being lied upon. I literally had trial by ambush. And what that means, means is that your lawyer does next to nothing and you're just swaying in the wind in the courtroom. You have no due process being enforced on your behalf whatsoever. It's called getting railroaded. Conviction was based on the testimony of two jailhouse snitches uh, you know, l let me uh, quickly get a background uh, from you. But Who were actually the murderers. But here are the words of Edward Olshaker from Justice Denied, who wrote in 2007 right. that your case was based solely on the conflicting testimony of two convicted felons, Gregory Hopkins and Gerald Skinner, right. and to a lesser extent, Hopkins' wife, Belinda, who was Skinner's sister. Right. Brothers-in-law Hopkins and Skinner both cut deals in 1985 to draft reduce their prison sentences in exchange for implicating Merritt. Merritt was initially sentenced to death, but a 1989 appeal reduced the penalty to life in prison. Why did it take four years for your trial to begin? And why was your testimony based on jailhouse snitches who are uh, mostly turning out to be liars? Okay, this all started for me in 1985 Gerald Skinner's arrested in Live Oak, Florida for a burglary okay. and the burglary was done exactly like the burglary done at the Daryl Davis residence the modus operandi there are nine matching modus operandis which points to identity yeah. he knew that he had did that crime exactly like the burglary murder where he killed Mr. Davis uh, we have statements from his ex-wife two of them that he did kill Mr. Davis. He told her he did, and Greg Hopkins was with him, and they framed me. But the courts have ignored this. Well, Hop Skinner, in 1985, in order to deflect suspicion from him, because he knew if they looked too close at the burglary, he got caught red-handed driving away from, they would suspect him of the Davis murder, and he wanted to throw that off on somebody else. So, he told them that I had made murder confessions to him. Yeah. And, uh, uh, when? Yes, when I get off, I will. And somebody's asking to get on the phone. This, I'm not talking to you. This is somebody else disturbing me. All right, but tell me something. Let when, me roll. Let me talk. 
In April of 1985, I was served with a body search warrant. Three years after the Davis murder, I'm served with a body search warrant in Virginia, and the affidavit claims that I made murder confessions to these two guys in a jail. It claims I was arrested with them for burglaries and put in the same jail with them, and none of that was true. Yeah. That's when I was first questioned, three years after the fact, after Mr. Davis's murder. And none of that was true because you were not even in the, in the prison with them? I was not even in the jail with them. And the same sheriff's investigator, Neil Knightum, told these lies on the affidavit. And when questioned later on down the road, he swore that Gerald Skinner told him this. Well, I do have an investigator's statement from Beacon Investigations, an old one that I sent him, where Skinner did tell him that. He did lie and tell them that I was in the jail with him and I made confessions to him in the jail. The thing about that is I got two Virginia Sheriff's statements proving that wasn't true. I wasn't arrested with him, I wasn't in jail with him, it was impossible to make a jailhouse confession. And I sent those statements to Bob Deckel, the assistant state attorney who was handling the case. And I knew when they took hair and fingerprint samples from me that the lab testing would clear me because I haven't killed anybody. And I sent him copies of the sheriff's statements as further proof that he was being lied to, figuring that would get the case dropped. Because once a prosecutor knows that his witnesses are committing perjury, he's not supposed to use them anymore. He's supposed to be ethically better than that. That's not what happened. I get extradited down to Florida, and I find out at the trial that Deckel has allowed these two to change the entire location of their statements completely. Wow. Nobody's saying jailhouse confessions anymore. And if you want me to talk about it again, my lawyer led me to believe all the way up to the trial that the whole case was bogus jailhouse confessions and that I was going to be acquitted. I asked him the night before the trial, did he have the sheriffs ready to testify? He lied to me and told me he did. At the trial, there were no sheriffs to testify to me. There was no testimony about jailhouse confessions. There were lies these two put out there on the witness stand that my lawyer had never told me about. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any FDOE experts on the stand to tell the jury that the 100 latent prints found at the murder scene weren't mine. He didn't have any FDOA expert to tell him that the hairs weren't mine. He just finally elicited testimony from Neil Knightum, but Neil Knightum was like a weasel squirming on a stand, lying at first saying uh, they would test results for the inconclusive. No, they weren't merits. Hopkins would test it. He told four perjuries at the trial. He told five more in a 1989 deposition about it. Wow. And he finally admitted to the 1989 lawyer that no, Hopkins Harris would never submit. He said, I don't know why I didn't submit him and all that. Mm. Well, I know why. Anybody that's familiar with corrupt cops knows why. And you have to go to the two statements that Gerald Skinner's first ex-wife, Luca Harvey, made, where she said conclusively, Gerald told her that he killed Mr. Davis and Greg Hopkins was with him. Yeah. And they lied on me to get out of trouble for cases they had that were completely unrelated to the murder case. And they succeeded. Bottom line, the prosecutors put me on death row 
based on the testimony of the two men who actually did the crime. And they didn't care about the truth. Wow. All they cared about was getting a conviction, clearing the books, and making themselves look good. You're listening to Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. I want to take you to that day when that thing occurred and you will tell me exactly step by step what happened. You will not hold anything back. So it's imperative that we record that day from your mouth, word to word, what happened. Are you cool with that? Well, Imran, hmm. Imran, you're going to have to remember I'm innocent of this. The only thing I can tell you is that I was working on the day this crime occurred. If you want me to tell you how I felt on the day I got sentenced to die for something I'm innocent of, that's a different story. But I worked for a man named Jim Clampett at a Chevron station at that time period. Just to let you know, I mean, the whole story is complicated to tell because there's so many layers of corruption on the officials' part involved here. I mean, I, I may have to... For the sake of your podcast, just get to the central points, you know, especially in in relation of Darlene's YouTube site and the Beacon Investigative Solutions link, because people that are going to contact the parole commission, you know, they they need to know that, you know, especially in relation to the corrupt officials that keep coming up to the hearings and telling lies on me and how they impacted the 15 parole here. And I was recommended for the lifers program then. And usually you go to the lifers program one year later, you're paroled. So you see the devastating effect these two corrupt ex-officials' lives had. Uh, it took me seven years to, to correct it, to put it in front of the commissioner's faces and make them aware you have two people committing fraud upon the commission, telling all kind of lies on me, and I had no opportunity to redress it back in 15, even when I had a lawyer and an investigator at the hearing. Wow. And the, re- the reason they do this is because they're scared to death that when I get out, I'm going to sue them and destroy their reputations. One of them's a current law professor. That's the end of his career. Once I get talking, yeah. well, well, see, the thing is, the thing is, he doesn't know what's coming at him right now. He's not aware of Beacon's report, and uh, he's not aware of what I sent the parole commissioners. I put all together 180-some pages I mailed to each one of them. What I've got before him is proof of Nidham's perjuries and obstructions of justice in the case, where he committed fraud upon the court. And he's committing fraud upon the parole commission now, him and Deckel. And the, the whole the whole bottom line to it is they helped frame me. They know they did, and they know that I figured it out, and they know that if I succeed at some point in getting legally freed, I'm going to sue them. And when I sue them, that's the end of their reputations and whatever respect they had as a law enforcement officer and a prosecutor. And that's the end of Deco as a law professor. That university will fire him once the media sees what I got. I mean, I've even, well, and Beacon has it in their 18-page report to the parole commissioners. They have the Brady violation he knowingly committed where he's in emails to Molly, who was, 
you know, my pen pal from Australia, yeah. she tricked him into thinking she was a writer doing a book on American crime, and he sold her a copy of the depositions and stuff in the case, and he wanted to brag to her, and where he states, it's nowhere found on paper. What that means is that's an admission that he never turned it over to my lawyer or me. What this liar Skinner, who's the actual killer, said on Suicide Watch where he told him, no, I wish I knew karate, and he asked him why. He says, because then I wouldn't have to shoot people who mess with me. Wow. Well, that's a statement by a witness that I would have been allowed to use at trial to impeach him, and Deco hid it from me. Well, he's teaching law students now, and that statement in itself proves that he's an unethical former prosecutor who has no problem withholding information from a defendant in a murder trial. That he can't explain away to his law students. And I'll hammer it home to the media once I'm out. I'll have uh, 200 copies made of those emails, and he's bragging about it. He's bragging about committing an unethical violation as a prosecutor. John, how long how long have you been in there and how long more to go? I've been locked up on this since 1986 and I have a parole interview coming up this month and I have two separate appeals filed in two separate courts. The parole interview is not a guarantee. What's been going on at your parole hearings? Why, why have you been having these hearings and nothing nothing's coming out of them my initial parole hearing was in 2010 they denied me set me off to 2015 prior to the 2015 hearing the parole interviewer recommended me recommended me for the lifers program which is a program usually once you complete it they're going to parole you set you free i had a lawyer and an investigator at the 2015 hearing and unbeknownst to us, the former sheriff's investigator and former prosecutor had been appearing previously at the 2010 hearing. They appeared at the 2015 hearing and told a pack of lies to the commissioners, and that killed anything positive occurring for me. Mm -hmm. uh, Neil Knightum, the former sheriff's investigator, told, told the parole commissioners that I threatened him, I threatened the prosecutor, I threatened witnesses. None of that's true. He said that even my family did, some of my family didn't want me paroled. None of that's true. Bob Deckel compared this to the, the former prosecutor's the most heinous crime that he'd ever uh, been involved in investigating. None of that's true. He's been involved in investigating serial killers. And he also said that I had killed and I would kill again. And we had presented 200 pages of documents to the commissioners prior to the hearing, proving my innocence and how I'd been framed. And he just completely dissed all of that. Wow. Beacon Investigative Solutions has an 18-page report before the commissioners now where their president, who's got 40 years as a uh, public and private investigator, totally blast Nidum and Deckel for the lies that they've been telling in my hearings to try to preempt what they're going to do again this time if they're still alive. They'll, they'll be at these hearings until hell freezes over. And the only way I can try to refute what they're saying is through what Beacon Investigative Solutions has done, their 18-page report, 
where Beacon states clearly that I'm innocent, I'm a victim of systemic governmental corruption, and these two officials have been repeatedly coming to the hearings lying on me, and they lay out how I was framed. Is it even legal for people to do that, to retire and then come back and, and do this? Well, it, it's not illegal, it's unethical. To give you an example, the current newly elected prosecutor in Los Angeles, when Suran Suran had his parole interview recently, he stated publicly it's not the prosecutor's job to come up and try to make decisions on a man decades later. His job as a prosecutor, it ends there. It doesn't go beyond the courtroom. In my case, you have two people going above and beyond, and the reasons for that are that they fear me getting out and suing them and destroying their reputations, which I'm going to do, by the way. I mean, it's, uh, there's no question about that, mm -hmm. but that's, the, that's their motive. I am going to sue them, and I am going to talk to everybody that will put a microphone in front of me and show documents to prove what these two corrupt ex-officials did in the case. I've got a current fraud upon the court motion in the trial court where I'm proving nine perjuries and five obstructions of justice that the sheriff's investigator Nightum committed in order to railroad me, to rail, uh, ram me through the system and frame me for something that he had a pretty good idea as two state witnesses were guilty of. If he felt like they were innocent, he would have had no problem getting hair samples from both and submitting them for lab testing. Wow. I repeat, neither one of them ever had their hairs tested. Skinner's fingerprints weren't taken either. Skinner's hair samples weren't taken, and he's the very one, the actual killer, the man who, according to his ex-wife, Luca, she said he told her he shot Mr. Davis with his gun. Gerald shot Mr. Davis with Gerald's gun. You have one minute remaining. We'll have to continue this tomorrow. Yeah, we will. You're listening, You're to, listening fair play to Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. Did you say, me, me, did you say that? That lady in Australia, she just got him, man, because that, that's the one that he answered to, right? Yeah, yeah. And he gave yeah. her his email site to contact after he left the prosecutor's office. Yeah. And it, it gets even worse there on the email site from what I've been told by the people. He lied and claimed that I had some type of armed rape conviction in Virginia, and that's not true. Wow. It's simply not true. He smeared me with a, uh, as a sexual predator on the Internet for 30-some 30 30 some years. Shit. I've never had any conviction like that, never had any arrests like that, and I wouldn't have known about it except for people that have wrote me over the years, brought it to my attention. I thought, well, that's Deco doing that. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to his website, you might find it real interesting what he's put out there. He's put out all lies, man. Yeah, and then the thing is, he hides behind a cloak of respectability because he's a former prosecutor and a current law professor. The parole commission believed everything he said, and I had no chance to rebut it. Parole commissions 
are just like them. They're trying to save each other's asses. That's what's going on. And the fact that this guy can come out of retirement and he can convince a whole parole commission to stand behind a lie, that just shows how corrupt is the parole commission. Well, yeah, the problem is the way the, the hearings are set up, whoever's going to speak on my behalf, if anybody appears, gets the first 10 minutes. Well, whoever's going to speak against me has the last 10 minutes, and then that's it. It's over with. The yeah. commissioners make their decision. Nobody can say anything else. I had no chance at rebuttal at all. It's a joke. And I wouldn't have even known what was said if I didn't have people present. Most guys up for parole have nobody present, so they don't know uh, what anybody is saying negative about not releasing them on parole. So I figured, well, they did this in 15. They did it also in 2010. And they're coming up prepared to do it again in 2021, except this time Beacon has preempted them with uh and dennis forrester is the president of beacon he's personally you know vouching you know he's saying you know unequivocally john barrett's innocent this is how he was framed and these are the two line ex-officials and how they lied on him before and i'm telling you that they are lies i mean that's pretty powerful his 18 pages very and any of your your podcast viewers you know if they go to Dolly's youtube site and go to his link and actually take time to read those 18 pages, they'd have to be an awful hard soul to not want to email the commission and say, hey, you need to release this man. But the thing is that you have to understand, John, no one's going to go through those 18 pages and 20 pages and then dig deeper. People are shallow. I understand, you know, why it's so important for people to actually hear me speak as part of that because then... You know, it gives them something to go along with. This is coming from the horse's mouth, from me. I understand. That's why that's important. Because then it makes the YouTube site more meaningful. You know, otherwise it's just paperwork. I can conceptualize it, put it in two or three sentences, and tell them this is what you're going to find in those pages. The one that may need to be highlighted and all that is the Florida Department of Law Enforcement's 2008 cold case report, where 22 years after I'm in prison, they basically declared the case is unsolved. Yeah. And they knew when they did their report that I was locked up. That's the only time in United States history that a cold case team has ever stated that a case is unsolved after a man is in prison bearing a conviction in the case. Unbelievable. You won't find it anywhere else in the world. That's the only time it's ever happened. That is a big thing. And I'm just amazed that none of the media has ever jumped on it before. That's major news. Yeah, because most of the media is a sellout and they're asleep. And they don't want to... They, they, they're, they're more concerned about their connections with the government so they can get their interviews and their funding. Well, and, and you know, the bottom line is, I explained that to the commissioners... Uh, the media needs to at some point realize that the state officials in my case used two serial killers to convict me for their murder, put me on death row, let them go free with life sentences for crimes they had committed unrelated to the murder case. Then three years later, they go on to murder four people while I'm locked up 
with the same unique MO as they use in the case that I got framed for. Yeah. I've gotten to one guy's ex-wife's statement where she's saying he told her that they did the murder and they lied on me. They framed me for their murder and they still haven't been charged with the four they did, but they basically, they killed five people and four of the ones they killed were when I was locked up and all five were killed with the same unique modus operandi. Mm. That's powerful evidence in a court of law. Yeah. Once I get a new trial, that's going to get me acquitted. But the thing is, this has been explained to the media before by me, and nobody has run with it. It's, it's, it's insane. You got two serial killers on the loose, the prosecutors use them to convict an innocent man, and it can't get a minute of airtime. That's insane. Wow. <laughs> the the thing is, John, that when they start giving you airtime, and when when the when the fact and the truth about the parole uh, board and these these corrupt prosecutors and the judges and the police, when it all comes out, you know that's going to ruffle some feathers. A lot of careers are going in. People are going to get fired. They should be. They're going to want to duck their heads and hide. They should not just be fired, they should be held accountable, they should be put in prison. Well, not only them, some of the major media figures who ignored it. I mean, I wrote some powerful people in the national media and sent them documents to prove all this. Yeah. And I don't know if their staff just threw it in the trash and never showed it to them. That'll probably be their excuse. But these are people, some of them are supposed to be dedicated to helping solve cases of injustice and they had no interest whatsoever yeah no I, I read your letter and I know who these people are in fact when the right time comes I'm gonna use that letter to show the world uh, what these people are I agree there needs to be a national soul-searching going on to instill uh, changes in the law to protect the innocents the innocent from falling into the cracks of injustice as long as I have you know yeah. so this doesn't happen to other people I know what needs to be done it's just getting people to listen you know because I went through it I know how they got away with what they did it starts with the grand jury system yeah where there's no checks and balances the prosecutors are free to tell every lie and perjure imaginable on you and they get away with it but yet they couldn't do that at a trial where it's out in the open in front of the public and that needs to stop. There needs to be an automatic transcript made of every grand jury indictment with a lawyer and the defendant with the, ink, with the camera rolling in the courtroom go over the whole transcript of the grand jury proceedings. And if there's any perjury or misconduct in there that the lawyer or the defendant can detect, then the case has to be dismissed and they start over. That's the only way to keep the prosecutors honest in this country. That's a great idea, man. Well, yeah, I know. It's just getting people to listen. That's because too much of that's gone on. I think 75% of your people on death row would have new trials if it was made retroactive. Well, they'd have to be re-indicted all over again fairly and honestly because prosecutors know, you know, one of the famous sayings is I could get a ham sandwich indicted by a grand jury. They have free reign. They can bring up all kind of things that are not allowed to bring up in a regular trial, and they get away with it. It's horrible what they did. I can prove 
21 perjuries that were given to the grand jury in my case. I just haven't raised that as a legal issue because the motions I have filed are powerful enough to get me a new trial right now. But that's always there. Fraud upon the court can be raised at any time, and they committed massive fraud upon the grand jury to get me indicted. That's what I'm saying, man. Imran, how this started, I was presented with a body search warrant, and I'm reading the affidavit. The affidavit claimed that I was arrested with these two guys, that I was in jail with these two guys, and that I made confessions in that jail. The only problem with all that is I was never arrested with them, and I was never in jail with them. You can't confess to people you're never around in a jail. Yeah. The sheriff's investigator made all this up, so I wrote two sheriffs, right? I got a letter from the sheriff of the jail I was actually in. I got a letter from the sheriff of the jail they were in and jail housing records, and I sent those to Bob Deckel. This one is lying at my hearings. That's another reason. I figured, okay, they wanted hair and fingerprint samples from me. I gave them to them. I thought, well, once the lab results come back, they'll realize, okay, it's not him. You know, there are no matches. He's innocent. None of that ties you to the crime scene. The thing is, what Deckel did, and my court-appointed lawyer led me to believe all the way up to the trial that the whole case against me was two liars claiming I made jailhouse confessions to them. My lawyer led me to believe that was a whole case. I asked my lawyer the night before the trial, do you have the sheriffs ready to testify? He looked a little rattled, but then he composed himself and he said, yes, I do. At the trial, there are no sheriffs. There are no claims of uh, jailhouse confessions. They've been allowed by Deckel to change the location of the testimony completely. And my lawyer was bullshitting me all the way. I had trial by ambush. Yeah, man. I had two choices. I could sit I could sit there and act civilized, or I could strangle him in front of the jury, and that would have just made it worse. Because then they would say, whoa, oh, yeah, he's guilty. He's a savage. You know, he's trying to strangle his lawyer. Probably that's what they wanted you to do. Deckel knows. I know what he did because of uh, what I sent him. I sent him, I told him, and that letter has been destroyed by him. I told him, I'm innocent. Your lab test results on the samples I voluntarily gave are going to show you that. And here's statements from these two sheriffs in jail housing records that are proven that the basis for this warrant, this affidavit, is nothing but perjuries throughout. I was never arrested with these two guys, never in jail with them and no jailhouse confessions ever occurred. It's impossible for that to have happened. And Deco never responds, and, and he let them change the location of their lives completely. My lawyer never told me. My lawyer was in on it with them to basically try to snuff my life out for their own career enhancement. The prosecutor solved a the case. They it's a deal that lawyers who are slimy make all the time with prosecutors. They say, okay, the prosecutors say, give us this one. We're going to do him any way we want, and we'll give you a few down the road. Hmm. So he does that, and he sandbags you, and most guys are too naive. I was naive to the law after the at that time. I wanted to believe that he was really trying to defend me, because you got to believe he's the only thing between you and an arbitrary abuse of prosecutorial power. 
that just stomps you in the dirt like an ant or a cockroach. And that's what they did to me. They deemed me totally worthless. We are going to fuck this guy over, and he ain't going to be able to do nothing about it. I was shell-shocked. I thought, you got to be kidding me. This is like walking through a nightmare, except it's not something you're watching on TV. You're actually living through it. Yeah. And they did this, knowing what they were doing. The thing is, their two state witnesses had the same color hair as that found on the victim's outer clothing. Over three dozen hairs. They weren't my hairs. They weren't the victim's hairs. They had to be the killer's hairs. And they never tested either one of them. They never even took hair samples from one of them. They just gave these and lied about it at the trial. Nightum lied about it. The same one that presented me with the body search warrant where the affidavit was based on perjuries. This guy came from Miami to Columbia County, and he was in Miami at the time where they were robbing and framing drug dealers. Yet he wants to give up his career and come to a small redneck. You have one remaining. Day one for me was when I was presented with that body search warrant. That's it. Day one when. Day one, when this man was murdered, I was working at a gas station. That's where we need to start off from, man. Okay, but that there is where the lawyer lied to me, too. He said that he talked to my former boss, and he never talked to him. I don't find that out till years later. That's why I know, with the other lies he told, that my court-appointed attorney was in it solid with the prosecutors. Yeah. To help frame me for something I didn't do. You're listening to Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. Welcome to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui. And joining me right now is John Merritt from Appalachian Correctional Institution in Florida. I just sent you an email. I'm having my pro interview Monday over a telephone. I'm not even getting to see a live person. But, uh... <laughs> You'll read all that on the email. Just we need to stay focused on this because you're paying for this time over the phone. All right. So tell me what is in the email. Tell us about it. Well, this morning I was on the call out to go to classification for a telephonic interview. I find out that it's my parole interview. Normally you get parole interviewed by a person where they're across from you on the table and you're allowed to give documents to them. Because of COVID-19, and I didn't know this till today when somebody explained it to me who came from another prison, they're doing parole interviews over the telephone now. They're scared to death to sit across from somebody, a prisoner. The, wow. the, the thing about telephone interviews is it's grossly inefficient. You have documentation that you want to give them, you can't give it to them. The only thing I can do Monday is say, look, okay, I understand how your format is going here, but you need to give me your name and address and hold off on making a recommendation until you read the documentation I've got for you. Obviously, I'm not allowed to fax it to you. I don't have access to a fax machine. And fortunately, everything that I'm going to give the pro interview, I've already sent it in advance to each of the three commissioners. So if the pro interviewer gets snotty and hard-headed and doesn't want to agree with what you know I have to suggest, at least they all three already have what I want to say to them in front of them anyway. 
because from what I understand, they only give you five minutes where whoever's on the telephone is typing down what you say with the phone to say what you want to say to the commissioners. Well, five minutes, obviously, is not enough time to discuss what happened that's had me locked up for something I'm innocent of for 36 years. So it's, it's, it's disgusting, but it's the way they have the parole interview set up here in Florida. And the actual parole hearing where three commissioners are present in Tallahassee won't be for weeks, a month, maybe longer. I won't be present. I won't have any input in that whatsoever. It'll be... There won't be anybody to speak. There won't be anybody to speak on my behalf for my 10 minutes. There won't be a lawyer. There won't be an investigator. These two former officials will show up and tell their lies all over again. And if they don't pay attention to what I sent them as proof of why they shouldn't let these two speak at all at the hearings, then it's all been for nothing. Just more of the same. They'll just shoot me down and give me another 2166 presumptive parole release date. Man, this is uh, crazy. Why are they doing this? Well, parole, from what I understand, I don't know if it's exactly true. I guess looking at the parole commission's website might reveal the truth that I've been told they've only paroled 20 people in the last three years. It's a money-making racket. It's job security. They get a $10 million a year budget. And other than parole hearings, revocation hearings, they have investigators who look into anybody applying for clemency. And they, they do little to nothing for the money. So it's in their interest to keep the people locked up with the life sentences who are eligible for parole because we're basically giving them their paychecks. If they were parole us all out, they wouldn't have anything to do. And there's only between 4,000 to 5,000 of us who have parole eligibility in the system. We're all older men. Maybe there's a woman or two, I'm not sure. But statistics show you can parole older guys and they're just not inclined to repeat criminal behavior they've had enough and they just won't do it so are you talking about the florida commission on offender review yes yes the florida commission yeah that's the politically correct name for the parole parole commissioners all right so yeah, the parole board florida commission on florida commission on, on offender, offender review. review yes on their website, they're saying that the Florida Commission on Offender Review will resume in-person parole hearings in the Betsy Easley Conference Center at their normally scheduled time, 9 a.m. on Wednesdays, beginning in September 2021. Uh, our conference call line will be available during in-person hearings for those who prefer to attend via teleconference. Thursday follow-up parole hearings and conditional medical release hearings will be held via teleconference only. So why are they doing a phone thing with you when they're doing when they're allowing in-person parole hearings? That's what they're doing to the prisoners. They're not coming to see us anymore. It's not just me. They've done it to some at new other other prisons in the last month. They're not sending a person to interview us. 
uh, it's it's biased. It's there's no way it's fair. I can't see it as being remotely honest because you have documents that you want to submit and you can't submit them unless you mail them. Uh, and you have to get a name. And if the person wants to be hard held, don't question my authority. I'm with the parole commission. I'm not questioning your authority. I'm trying to get this thing done correctly. Then they'll think you got an attitude. You know, that'll just anger them and make, but I've got to do what I got to do. I mean, I've got the record set. You know, I'm going to wind up suing the parole commission in the future, too, for how they're handling all this. And it looks like uh, they're just putting a rope around their own neck with this nonsense. You know, there, are, there should be a live person across from me talking to me, receiving the documents like there was in 2014. Just because of the coronavirus, they can wear a mask, I can wear a mask. There's nothing wrong with that. But they won't do it. They have some... Uh, I'm going to have to call you back, okay? Something just came up. What happened? I'll call you back later on this evening, okay? Okay. I got to go. There's something going on here. All right, go. Listening to Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. Fight on, side by side with us, until victory is achieved. This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. Welcome back to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Tadiki. And joining me right now is John Merritt from Appalachian Correctional Institution in Florida. Hello, Imran. Uh, earlier, with that commotion you heard, yeah, there was something going on, and I had to get away from the area. I would have went to jail. I would have been falsely accused for knocking somebody out. Wow, man. So that's why I had to hang up, and I'd call you later. Yeah. So without any proof, they just put you guys in? They don't need any proof here. Officers on a regular basis just make up stuff on a guy. Sometimes, if they don't know who did something and there's a line, they'll just pick three guys at random and lock them up. Sometimes they'll pick five at random. Mm -hmm. It's not fair, but it's how it is in the system. Tell me something, John. Go ahead. I wanted to ask you a question. Yeah. Uh, someone at the FDLE, uh, Florida Department of Law Enforcement Violent Crime right. Squad, the cold case division? Right. They have deemed your case unsolved. Yes. What does that mean? Well, uh, that's that's how uh, Dennis Forrester of Beacon Investigative Solutions mm -hmm. phrased it in his report to the parole commission. They didn't come right out and say that, but they did because what they did, they, they have a score ratio where 50 is best for being able to solve a case. And what they did in this case, 22 years after I was locked up, they gave it a, a rating of 12 for solvability, which is extremely low. And, a lot, and more than half of those points were irrelevant. So really the ratio was six. And what that means, because had they felt like I did it, they would have said, this case is solved. John Merritt is in prison. They didn't do that. They listed about 12 other suspects, and uh, Hopkins, a state witness, was one of the suspects. 
and they gave it a solvability ratio of 12 out of 50, with 50 being best. Mm-hmm. And when uh, Dennis contacted the FDOE about who made the report, nobody will claim ownership. Mm-hmm. And see, that's a report that I didn't find out about until many years later. In earlier years, I had got copies of FDOE records, what they would sell me, but they were hiding portions from me. It was an incredibly long time, decades later, before I got that report. Well, after 2008, I think it was uh, 14 or 15 when I became aware of that report from from December of 2008. Yeah, and when was that report made? Uh, 2008. All right. So someone within the Florida Police Department cold case division is that you are innocent. Well, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement is the highest law enforcement agency in Florida. It's like Florida's FBI. Okay. They didn't come right out and say in black and white that I'm innocent, but that's what it means. That's what Dennis meant when he made those statements because I had already been in prison 22 years at the time convicted of the crime and they didn't state this crime is solved, John Merritt did it, he's serving a life sentence for it. What they did say in a page four is Merritt has a life sentence. They didn't even say Merritt has a life sentence for this case. Mm. Uh, they, and they gave it 12 out of 50 on a solvability scale, 50 being the best for solving it. See what I'm saying? Yeah, that means it's, it's you know it's uh, I mean it's like one of the worst situations right now in terms of solving this case and it's unsolved, even though the guy is in prison. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, have you heard this before? I I don't think this uh, I've heard this before in my life. No, I I'd never heard of that. I'd never heard of that being done anywhere in the USA, any other cold case team, and that's why I couldn't understand when I sent a copy of it to certain people in the media why they weren't all over that. That's major news, but uh, it wasn't major news because they never never contacted me. As far as I know, they never reported it. I've never heard a word about it from anybody in the media. Mm-hmm. And it's baffling because that just doesn't happen. You know, a cold case team doesn't state that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in, in, in claiming you as uh, a murderer Skinner and Hopkins gave different accounts of the circumstances uh, of your alleged confession but uh, for the prosecutor uh, Mr. John Terhune if I have his name right uh, right, right. he he didn't think that that was uh, a big deal that their stories are conflicting well well, what happened the uh, uh, Luca Harvey Skinner's first ex-wife, when she gave her first statement, she said that she overheard them rehearsing their lies, what they were going to say on me in court, how to lie on John Merritt. And Mm -hmm. they obviously couldn't remember all of the lies in sync with each other. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what happened. That's why they they weren't carbon copies of each other on the witness stand. Of course, Terhune wouldn't think it was a big deal because... They, they're his witnesses as far as he's concerned they're angels he had no interest in checking out whether there was any truth to what they were saying and 
One of the things I forgot to tell you while I was in the jail waiting trial, other guys had told me, and I didn't really think about trying to get no evidence about it at that time, but they said that Neil Knightum, the sheriff's investigator in my case, mm -hmm. would routinely threaten guys in Columbia County and say, look, <clears throat> you either plead guilty to the charge I put on you, or I'm going to put you away for a long time, possibly even life. I'm going to frame you. Nightum had no problem telling him that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just, okay, I mean, my was focused on my case and what my lawyer was telling me, but I'd heard that quite a few times in the county jail. Mm -hmm. How happy were you with your defense? I'm not happy at all with what happened. That was horrible. I mean, it was a nightmare. I mean... John Trehune, the assistant state attorney, got up and spoke with a deep, booming baritone, a voice that resonated off the walls and just invaded your eardrums. You couldn't help but pay attention to him. My lawyer, Martin Black, got up and stuttered. I thought, you got to be kidding me. Mm -hmm. and this guy's not impressive at all. And, of course, I know now the things that he didn't do that he was supposed to do and one of the things, like in the FDA cold case team report, you got to understand there was somewhere between 12 to 16 suspects in this case. Two of them were serial killers, O'Toole and Lucas. And I was never told about that before the 86 trial or at any point afterwards. I don't find this out until later on when I get to digging and snooping into the records everywhere I can obtain them. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the thing about... Bob Deckel laughing at what Gerald Skinner said on Suicide Watch. I wasn't told that. I mean, the discovery violations in this case are so many, it's incredible to even try to imagine an honest prosecutor ever doing what they pulled on me. They just didn't care. They were bound and determined. This is good old boy, corrupt good old boy judicial system and a redneck area. There was 40,000 in the county at that time and 5,000 lived in Lake City itself. Mm -hmm. They had a license to do whatever they wanted to do and they did do it. Yeah. I didn't know any better. I didn't know the law. I didn't have any power behind me. I couldn't afford a good lawyer so I was just an easy victim for them to dog out and get away with it and hope I would never be able to come up for air in the system and prove what they did to me. So Skinner was the first to offer information uh, he claimed to know about about the Davis murder, right? Right. So uh, the, the, the question is that why would the state attorney's office would base a murder case on the changing stories of a man they regarded as dangerously deranged? Because... We uh, there is an email that was uh, received. It's mentioned in one of the articles of, of 2007 in Edward Olshaker's article. There's a mention that uh, a very candid 2005 email from one of the prosecutors to independent researcher Molly Wild. Right. Yeah. Made an exchange of email, and in the email, the prosecutor recalls with amusement that Skinner, they met at Chattahoochee. Uh, Florida's Institution for the Criminally Insane to discuss Skinner's allegations. Right, that's the insane asylum in Florida. Uh, he had a history of shooting people whom he disliked, quote unquote. That is from that email. Right. Why would the state take this guy's word and then 
try to screw you over with it. It wasn't anything personal about me as an individual. That was just a general way of operating for them. They've probably done it in a bunch of cases. I'm just the one that won't lay down and wear it. Even decades later, I'm still fighting. Hmm. You, if you could go back to every case of a man who has a long sentence in there, you would probably find a great deal of that. They, they had an unsolved case of a prominent citizen in her county. They wanted to put it off on somebody. It was unsolved for, uh, what, three years, four years. Well, it's still unsolved because they don't have the right person. The right persons were the state witnesses. But they weren't interested, like Dennis says in the report, they weren't interested in justice or due process in this case. They could care less. They just wanted to put it off on somebody, and I was the chosen patsy. So what do you want to say to America, John? Well, I definitely want to say I have a pro interview coming three days from now, and after that, a hearing where three commissioners will be seated together in Tallahassee where they would decide what to do. Please go to the YouTube site, and then please go to the Beacon Investigative Solutions site, and look at what Beacon's saying. They declare unequivocally that I'm innocent, they lay out how I got framed, and they point out how these two corrupt ex-officials keep coming to the hearings in line, and they tell you what they lied about and how they're lying. I need the public to email the parole commission. The email's address should be on there. If not, please go on the Internet to the Florida Commission on Offender Review. I believe it's www.fcor small captions dot I believe it's state or st it's f-c-o-r dot state dot f-l dot u-s and the email is right inmates supporter at f-c-o-r dot state dot f-l dot u-s we will put this in the description of the interview that we have with you and I need as many people as possible to email or write the commission or fax them and encourage them to release me on parole. If somebody doesn't have an idea of what to say, then there's a form letter on the YouTube site, YouTube, Free John Merritt, in all small letters. Free yeah. John Merritt. They would find the interview on YouTube. Okay, well, there's a form letter there with all the information on the parole commissioner address and the website, their fax number, and what to say to them, uh, or they can just just email, please free John Merritt, the man's innocent, he's been locked up 36 years or something he didn't do. I'm tr- if enough people email him, that might be enough pressure to make the commissioners think, well, maybe we should release this man, or at least two out of the three. I need every edge I can get because I've got two corrupt ex-officials coming up lying on me repeatedly, and there's nobody going to be representing me at this hearing. Yeah. There's nobody will fill those 10 minutes, then these two will stand up again and tell the same lies they've been telling on me since 2010. And they won't even give you a chance to respond? No, I won't have a chance to respond. Wow. See, this here, the, the Beacon investigative, the 18 pages of facts they sent to the parole commissioners in August of this year, mm-hmm. 
that is my response seven years later. I had to wait seven years later to be able to rebut them because of the way the parole hearings are set up. Once the people speaking against you have the last 10 minutes, it's over with. Nobody can say anything else. The commissioners just at some point decide what they're going to do, and that's that. There is no uh, request for a hearing or rehearing or any of that. You can't do that. It's not how it's set up. It's not like a court of law. What happens after that? What, what happens if they deny again? If they deny me uh, seven more, it'll be a seven-year put-off. Wow, man. Where I have to wait seven more years, and they'll give me a 2166 presumptive parole release date. Wow. And I'll have to basically just forget about the parole effort and focus on the two appeals I have in separate courts. Now, if there's somebody out there listening, or will be listening to this, who's a good lawyer at defending uh, high pro, well, it, obviously it would be high profile. They put me on death row for something I didn't do. And if I get a new trial 36, 37, 38 years later, whoever decides to help me out at that new trial is going to get a lot of publicity for themselves, positive publicity for helping correcting injustice. But if I don't make parole, then that's why I'm going to need the biggest help at somebody who's very good at the law that doesn't mind helping correct the miscarriage of justice coming to my aid. Because you got a fool for a client if you represent yourself in a court of law, especially if you're a prisoner. You got to have an advocate for you that's got a legal license and can stand up there and do the things a good lawyer does in court for, for his client. And I can't afford that. I never could afford it. I mean, you know, but they can get a tax write-off for representing me pro bono to duck that from the income taxes at the end of the year. That's good business for any law firm. Mm. That's what I'm trying to sell as much as I can. <laughs> Are you with me? I understand, man. Huh? I know what you mean. Actually, it's un it, it's unfair what they're doing. I mean, they know what they're doing is unfair because just about every other state in America, the prisoner gets to speak in front of the parole commission, all of them. We never get to speak in front of them here. We get interviewed by a parole interviewer, and then that interviewer makes a recommendation. We never see the three commissioners ever. We never get to talk to them. Wow, man. And a parole interview over the telephone is horrible because at least... An interview face-to-face, -face, the interviewer can look at your demeanor and make a judgment on what you're saying, and you can have them documents. None of that happens in a telephone interview. From what I've heard, they give you five minutes to tell the commission what you want to hear. You can't possibly cover five minutes of what happened in my case yeah. and get it all said. That's not going to happen. It took me 13 pages to write the parole commissioners. I sent each a copy of the same letter, and I'm supposed to speak what took me 13 pages to write out in five minutes. Uh, it can't be done. So is there a guarantee that the parole commissioners would get your letters? Well, yeah, they, they got them. It's in the file. See, anybody uh, uh, can contact them because it's a, it's a public entity and buy copies of anything I've ever sent them. You can buy a copy of the tape of the hearings and all of that. Hmm. They can't deny you that. Florida has a public records act that forbids p 
public agencies from denying you access to any of their records. Yeah. And well, it cost me nine ninety per envelope wow. for each of the what I sent to each of the three parole commissioners. And if I have to, if the interviewer Monday is willing to give me a name and address to send in, that'd be another nine ninety coming off my account for postage, because. Whoever that is, whether it's a man or woman, they're going to get exactly what I sent to three commissioners. But it's impossible for the interviewer to make a judgment on my case by talking to me over a telephone. It's too much documentation they have to look at and think about. Yeah. Uh, tell me something. The people that you're accusing, uh, uh, that you're saying that they're trying to block your parole hearing, uh, if they come back at you, would you be able to defend yourself with evidence that these guys are involved in whatever that you're saying? Absolutely, absolutely, a hundred percent. Hello? Yeah, I'm listening. Okay, I heard some type of weird buzzing over the line. Uh, yes, yes, because see, I've got in the trial court right now over a hundred pages of documents that prove Neil Nightum did indeed commit five obstructions of justice and nine perjuries in the case. And the thing about all that is he is Bob Deckel's witness because Bob Deckel was co-prosecutor in the case and anything your witness does, you're liable for it. I absolutely had to prove to sue the pants off of both of them in any federal court in the future. And I've got the proof in court now. I focused on Nitem. I didn't accuse Deckel in the motions because it's sufficient unto itself for what Nightum did to give me a new trial. Mm -hmm. But Deco, the, pro the whole state attorney's office is linked to everything Nightum did because he's their witness. They're just as guilty as he is in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the judges and the appellate courts. I absolutely have the proof. Right. I wish they would come back at me. I want to get in front of a jury and lay it all out to them and see them try to squirm out of it. These guys know what you're talking about? That they've done this? That you know this? Do they know? Do they know what I filed on them? Yeah. Absolutely, they know. Mm -hmm. I mean, Deco Deco has a niece that works in the records department of the clerk of court's office, and Nightum's son is an investigator for the state attorney's office. Yes, of course they know what I filed. Mm -hmm. I could care less. You know, I'm telling the truth. I got nothing to hide. They're the ones trying to hide from what they did. Okay. I have no problem standing up in front of any jury in the world and debating this with them and laying out the proof I have that's admissible under the law. And I'm going to do that in the future. I'm going to sue them. There's no question about that because I want this on the books, on the federal case laws, I want the message sent out there that prosecutors and sheriff's investigators can't do this to people and get away with it. No matter how long it takes, it's going to catch up to them. Because there are people coming behind me who are victims too in the systems all over America who don't have the ability to put it all together like I have. So I'm going to have to be the spokesman for them. Wow. The trailblazer, if you will, to put an end to this. God willing. I have no problem doing that. You know, believe me, they thoroughly pissed me off. They created a monster legally that's not going to give an inch to them in court. 
and they deserve everything that's going to be coming to them from that federal jury. And the media wants us finally catches when and the media realizes what I've got there, what I've been saying. The bottom line, they used two serial killers to frame me for their murder, put me on death row, then life in prison. These two get out with light sentences for crimes they did unrelated to the murder case, and they go on to kill four people three years later while I'm locked up, and they still gotten away with it. And nobody in law enforcement, nobody in public office, politicians, media, gives a shit. And I explain it clearly and intelligently, and I'm sick of the ignorance of the people out here in the country that don't realize what's going on. You've got a serial killer alive and well in Ohio who's murdered at least five people, and who knows who else he's killed in Ohio. Hopkins died in 2010, but this type of nonsense has to stop. Skinner has to be brought to justice. And these people who failed in their job as public officials have to be brought to bear and admit the wrongdoing that they did. I'm not going to give up. Good. That's what's needed. I just hope that uh, what you say on your podcast will reach some people and pierce their conscience Mm. when they're sitting on the couch eating Cheetos and looking at their favorite football team and decide to brush off the uh, Cheeto crumbs and the stains from their sodas or wine or whatever and get up and do something, you know, help. You know, contact somebody in the media and say, hey, what are y'all doing? You know, this man's talking about two serial killers who were used as state witnesses, used as witnesses of the prosecution, and they go on to kill four more people three years later while this man's locked up. And he can't get a bit of help from the people who are in positions of authority who can help get the truth out about this. That's insane. That's sick. That's a damning indictment on Americans as a whole that they won't wake up and realize, my God, how we're letting a serial killer escape. And I've got the proof that can get the man convicted. The, Matching modus operandi case laws are proof legally admissible in any court in the nation. And all they got to do is just look at what I've sent them previously. Arrest the man, indict him, put him on trial, and he's convicted. And the souls of those five people can finally have some rest, some peace. The actual, one of the actual killers will be behind bars. The other one died in 2010. I'm just speechless, man. All I can say is, wake up, America. If you listen to this, you're going to be listening to it uh, tomorrow, this weekend, or next week. Wake up. You know, your deep sleep has gone on long enough. The officials are guilty of this. Everybody from the state attorney's level to the sheriff's department to the attorney generals of Florida to the politicians in Tallahassee and Congress who I wrote to all this media nobody did a thing until now you, Imran you and your your podcast mm-hmm. and these other people gotta you know, pay attention hey look uh, 
what more does it take? The only thing I know else to do is cut my soul wide open and let the memories of my whole life flash before the world so they can see there are no images of any murder in John Merritt's soul because he killed nobody. This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net.